Some of you have heard me talk about an old professor of mine. He was my director of sociology when I studied in San Antonio. And originally he was telling us one day that he started in chemistry. And as he was telling us about his chemistry days, I made the mistake of suggesting the reason why he switched from studying chemistry to studying sociology, studying people, was because he wanted something easier. And he let me know right then and there that chemistry was easy. You can learn elements and you can learn characteristics of the world. You can have a pretty good idea of what some things are going to do when you mix them with some other things. You can have a good idea of what's in store when you start working with elements and different things like that. Chemistry is easy. Trying to figure out people, that's tough. You know how people are. They tell you one thing one day, then they change your mind the next. Or they tell you want something and they go and tell him something else. Or they'll stand right in front of you and say they mean something, but in the back of their minds, they really want you to know something else. People are weird that way. People's feelings get hurt. They get offended. People think they know it all. Stop pointing up there. People are strange. But here's the thing about people that you've got to keep in mind. They're everywhere. Everywhere you look, there's people. And I know that almost sounds like a bad thing sometimes. But I'm going to offer to you this morning that it is a very good thing. And in fact, it even reminds us of something so basic that we understand about God. People need other people. If you don't believe that, then I don't know what you've been listening to in church to all these years. You certainly haven't been reading out of the Bible, because if you read on and on in Scripture, so many stories, what you what you see is that people need people. God's people need God's people. And that is rooted in the basic idea of how we understand God. So we're talking about the Holy Trinity. And you can't get too far in discussing the Holy Trinity before you just start to realize this is confusing because it is right. We understand that God is one person, God, but that God has these three expressions that are unique from each other, but are still God. Right. We see that there is God, the father, that God, the father is not God, the son, that God, the son is not God, Holy Spirit. But that God the Father is God, God the Son is God, and God the Holy Spirit is God. Make sense? That's our basic understanding. Here's what I want you to remember about that. Go all the way back to the beginning of our scripture. You've read the Genesis story when God is going through all of creation and he comes to people. And God doesn't say, I am going to make these people look like me. God doesn't say, watch what I do with them. Instead, if you remember those words, it says, 
Let's make them in our image. God himself is a relationship. How we understand God basically is through relationship. That somehow God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they're connected in this holy and mysterious way that reveal to us the wonder and the power of who God is. As we think about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we we understand and we see God as the King, as the source of all. We hear the words of Jesus and we know our sins have been forgiven and we see God as Savior. And we know, we remember the promise that we would never be left alone. And we know that is the Spirit of God that is always with us. So in our basic understanding of who God is, we see a connection to something else. I want to remind you of these two stories this morning that show us about our connection, not just with God, but with each other. You remember our friend Nicodemus, who, whom John says is a, a religious leader. He'd be one of the people that the people of God would go to if they had questions about the law, about the Bible, about what it means to be a faithful follower of God. They were the ones that uh, he, he, were the, he was the one that they would go to to ask to pray for them. He was somebody who was well respected, at least for his opinions about God, about faith stuff, probably Someone that people respected just because of who he was as well. And the other thing about Nicodemus, you have to realize, is he ran around with other people just like himself. His closest buddies were probably other religious leaders who knew the law well. Other people that others would come to and ask them to pray for. He was probably good, good with those people who were the religious leaders. But here's the thing about the people that he was hanging around with, the people that he associated with on an everyday, probably most of the day. He couldn't be real with them. Because as they are there together, they hear about this man, Jesus, who shows up and he's got a lot of good things to say and he's doing a lot of good things as well. But they don't want to approach Jesus because if they, high and mighty as they are, approach Jesus then how would that look on them? Other people might not respect them as much. Other people might think they don't have all the answers. Other people might think they're not as good as we think they are. How do we know that? John tells us specifically that Nicodemus goes at night to visit Jesus. You know, when nobody can see him. He says, Jesus, we, we know there's something good about what you're doing. Nobody apart from God can be doing the things that you're doing. And Jesus doesn't take the flattery well. He says, you don't know what you're talking about, do you? It's funny. You're a religious leader. You are someone who has devoted his life to God, but you have no idea What I'm talking about, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. What? Nicodemus said, well, how in the world, if I'm an old man, can I be born again? Am I just supposed to walk out the womb again? That's impossible. It doesn't make sense. 
Jesus. I can't go back to my people and tell them that. Nicodemus, you have no idea what you're talking about. And I think part of what we can see Nicodemus had trouble with is that he had limited his understanding of God. For him, and probably for the people that he associated with as other religious leaders, God was up there, and we were down here. And we did everything we could down here to make that God up there not mad at us. We dotted our I's, we crossed our T's, we did everything we could to make sure that we don't make that God mad at us. And if you pay attention to what Jesus is saying, that's not the kind of God we really serve. And that's where we get that great line that so many of us know. It's one of the favorite Bible passages for so many people that God came into the world. Why? To save us. Not to condemn us. Not to stand over us. Not to trip us up. Not to put us down. But he loved us enough to save us. So we've got to understand that's not the God Nicodemus knew. He's used to, well, tell me what I got to do and I'll make things right with God. And part of what Jesus seems to be saying is, you don't do anything. Look around you. Look around you and you see it's God who's already doing what needs to be done. All you can do is be born from above. It's not fair just to talk about Nicodemus in John 3 because it makes Nicodemus seem like a coward for going to Jesus at night. It makes Nicodemus seem like somebody who thinks he's more than really he is. It's not fair to talk about Nicodemus only in terms of John chapter 3. You need to go a little bit further back into John's book to really appreciate how this encounter with Christ changed Nicodemus. You remember Good Friday. You remember that Jesus has been put on trial, he's been mocked. He's been nailed to a cross. He's died. It is finished. But do you remember what happened next? Someone took Jesus' body down. Had to get permission to be able to do this. Had to get permission to prepare this dead body for a proper burial. Do you have any idea who one of those people were Nicodemus. Do you remember what time it was of the day that Jesus died? It was so light outside. Nicodemus didn't care who saw him then. That's the impact that encounter of God had on him. Then there's Isaiah. I don't know how much you know about Isaiah, but let me just uh, let me paint a, a small picture for you. Uh, Isaiah, we, we're, we read, Laura read from us from Isaiah chapter 6. But if, if you would have a Bible in front of you, uh, if you'd start from Isaiah 1. I'm, I'm going to do you a favor. I'm not going to read Isaiah chapters 1 through 5 right now. I won't do that to you. 
But I'll just read, you know, most of our Bibles, we have these little uh, headings there above a passage and they kind of give you an idea of what you're about to read. Let me just read a, a few of those uh, pa- those um, those subject lines. Can I? The very first one right after Isaiah one one. Here's the first heading. The wickedness of Judah. Oh, here's another one right above verse 21. The degenerate city. Okay. Uh, in chapter two, we have the future house of God, which is some nice words. It's only about five verses long before we have our next heading judgment pronounced on arrogance. Oh, my favorite. Go on another chapter. Uh, verse five. The song of the unfruitful vineyard. Take a guess who the unfruitful vineyard is. One more, two more social injustice denounced, which means there was social injustice going on. And the last one, there's a promise that a foreign evasion gets predicted. How are things for Isaiah, do you think? Pretty tough. And it was probably part of something he usually did as a prophet or as someone who believed in God that he found himself in the temple. But I I don't know, maybe understanding all that's going on, having a feel for how, how, how the people are living their lives. Maybe this day he's being drawn to the temple of God. He needs to be there. Have you ever felt like you need to be here on a Sunday morning? Maybe, maybe that's how Isaiah felt. This would prove to be unlike any other time he's been in the temple before, because as he's there very quickly, very quickly, and I don't know if it's a vision, I don't know if it's an experience, I don't know, I don't quite know any thing to tell you about what's really going on. But here's what Isaiah sees. He sees the Lord sitting on a throne high and lofty. How high, how lofty? He says the hem of the Lord's robe fills the temple. The hem of the robe fills the entire temple. Later on, the angels would come and they would proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's how impressive this is to Isaiah. He realizes very quickly he's in the presence of God. And this isn't a presence that he can take lightly. It isn't an encounter that he can ignore. It is something happening right in front of his eyes. And the only thing he can think to say first is, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Being in the presence of God has a way of reminding you and I who we really are. That's part of the reason why we need Sunday mornings. Part of the reason why we worship. So that God can remind us of who we are. I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah cries out. And I live amongst the people of 
clean lips. Now, I don't know if maybe he was asking these seraphs, these fiery ones, to do anything about that. But here's what they do as he's standing there crying out. You heard it read that they go to the altar and they get some, they get some tongs, not thongs. That would have been a different story, right? Woo, that would have been another one. But they get some tongs, they take a call, and they bring it to Isaiah. And they touch his lip with the coal. Now, remember what they say here. Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. See, technically, Isaiah could never say, again, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. You and I have been given the grace of God. Technically, we can't ever say again that we aren't what God says we are. And we are the blessed children of God. That's an ameniter if you were taking notes, by the way. Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. But let's 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 go back a little bit. Because as Isaiah remembers or realizes that he is in the presence of God here in the holy temple, the hymn of the Lord is filling the whole temple. There's smoke everywhere. There's angels flying around. The only thing he can think to say first is, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. The fiery one comes, says, "Okay, here, this is going to touch your lips. And you can't say that you are a man of unclean lips anymore. But who's left? Who's left? The people that Isaiah lived amongst with unclean lips. Now, here's where things get kind of funny. You have to really be paying attention. This, Isaiah has this great experience, and I, I don't know. I wasn't there, but I'm thinking, I remember the day I first felt my heart strangely warmed. It was a good feeling. It was a great day. And I'm thinking maybe Isaiah is feeling pumped up. He's feeling great. Oh, my goodness. Where is God going to take me now? But then he starts eavesdropping on God. God says, hmm, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Where does where does God need somebody to go? To the people with the unclean lips. Isaiah overhears God. Asking, whom shall we send? I don't know. Maybe later on he would regret saying it so quickly. Maybe he would think, man, I should have thought about that before I spoke up. But when he hears God ask, whom shall I send? You know the words of Isaiah. Here I am. Send me. Side note real quick, Um, the lectionary never includes the next verses of this chapter. Go home today, reread chapter 6, remind yourself about Isaiah being in the temple and the presence of God and being made clean, all that stuff. Hear God ask, whom shall I send? Hear Isaiah say, here I am, send me. And then read 
what God tells Isaiah to go and say. Back to our regular broadcasting. Here's the thing about our encounters with God. They are for you. For you to know that you are loved by God. God has offered us the promise of the Holy Spirit. God has offered us forgiveness through Christ. God has shown us that he is the source of all goodness so that we can know that he is worthy to be trusted, worthy to be praised, so that we can know that we don't follow a lie, so that we can know that we are the beloved children of God. Your encounters with God are for you to know. Y'all with me? Your encounters of God, however, are not just for you. Nicodemus had to decide that he was going to help take care of the body of Jesus, no matter who saw him. And he knew that after people saw him, he was going to have to do, he was going to have some splaining to do. Y'all with me? He knew that. He had to know that. And he had to feel like he was ready for it. Isaiah knows God doesn't play around and God says, whom shall I send? Isaiah opens his big mouth, says, here I am, send me. He has to know, especially when he hears what God wants him to say. Y'all with me? This is going to be tough. And on his own, probably couldn't do it. On his own, Nicodemus would probably be filled with fear. But here's what I think we can take away. Is that our encounters with God are for us, but they also prepare us. So that we can go and love, care for, serve, forgive, Stand up for, speak for, forgive again all of those people that we just cannot get away from, those people who are everywhere. Your encounters of God, whether they be here on a Sunday morning, whether they be on the porch, your back porch on a starry night, all of your encounters of God are for you and are to prepare you to do what God needs you to do. And may it be that God hears from us. Send me. Amen. Amen.